Good morning. Welcome to this, the second of our online church messages. Uh, today I thought that we would start our build-up to Easter, uh, seeing as it is the highlight of the Christian calendar. We're going to have three Easter-themed messages over the next few weeks. Now, if we are to have three messages about Easter, it really has to be the triumphal entry, the cross, and the resurrection. Now that means that, that we're not going to be going by the normal church calendar. I realise Palm Sunday is not this week. But in order to be able to have one on the cross itself, I just felt that we would do it this way. Now, so we don't match the calendar, but as everything is all up in the air anyway, I think we might get away with it. Anyway, the triumphal entry, or Palm Sunday as it's known, that entry of Christ into Jerusalem is a central point in the Easter story. And so it is an event that is recorded for us by all four of the Gospel accounts. It is a glorious occasion. Uh, as the kingship of Christ is revealed to the backdrop of a people crying out, Hosanna. It is a moment that we've been building up to in each of the Gospels. Uh, from the moment he was born, that king in the manger is heading to Jerusalem. He goes there, uh, not content uh, to be a petty monarch of one nation. He is already the king of kings, the rightful ruler of all nations. He does not need a throne that is given to him by the Romans because he already has a throne in glory. And if he wished, he could take every tin pot kingdom on the planet. He doesn't need to defeat those that stand in opposition. He doesn't need to impress Pilate. He doesn't need to confound the Sanhedrin. This king heads to Jerusalem because he has a bigger battle. He has the biggest of all battles. He heads into the city because he is going to defeat sin and death. He has a date set from the beginning of time. As the crunch of the fruit reverberated around Eden, Christ was headed to the cross. And all these years later, Christ arrives. The time is now, and the timing of the King is perfect. Now, very often we will earnestly desire that God works on our own timetable, unaware of how perfect his timing is, how exact, how precise, how spot on his moments are. But this triumphal arrival into Jerusalem Jesus sets into motion the events that will lead to his death and resurrection. He declares for the first time openly to the nation that he is the long-awaited Messiah, the king that they have been waiting for. He does so in his time, not being made king by proclamation or the strength of another. He does it in his way, not being made king by any other or by a show of force, but in humility. He does so with foreknowledge of the consequences of his actions, because he is the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. He does so because he is the king, whether the people realise it or not. So in our text this morning, we have the arrival of the king. Not just a king, it is instead the king, the king of kings. He arrives in the city. Now remember, Jesus has always been the king. He would be the king whether the crowds acknowledged it or not. His kingship has always been, yet now it is time for it to be made public. 
It is a kingship that had been held in tension from the beginning of the Gospel accounts. The Magi in Matthew 2 came searching for a king, and it is only now that that secret known by those men from afar is revealed to those subjects of the king of Zion. He had always been their king. Whether he had lived in a palace with the regal life that was rightfully his, or whether he was born in the stable and took it upon himself to be the friends of sinners, he had always been the king. It should be noted this morning that he is also the king whether we wish it, whether we want it, whether we recognise it or not. Whether he has a triumphal entry into our hearts or not, he is still the king. And so he arrives in the city in the manner described by the gospel writers. And it is a fulfilment of the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 which said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, <coughs> O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the king arrives. The one who comes on the donkey is bringing salvation. The Hebrew term for salvation here, or saving, can mean saved from an ordeal. And that is as small as the crowd are really thinking. Perhaps their hope is so small that when they cry Hosanna, they are satisfied with merely being saved from Roman occupation. Yet the context of Zechariah shows a very different vision for this king. He returns to Jerusalem in peace and righteousness, not in great fanfare, but in humility. And he comes with a much greater victory in mind. This is why Jesus chose this mode of transportation, for by doing so, he is making a significant statement. He is declaring himself as king, the long-awaited king, the righteous king who brings salvation with him, the king on a donkey. His disciples are told to go and take the donkey. Uh, Now, as an aside, commandeering the property and indeed the transportation method of another was a privilege for royalty. And here we see Jesus acting as the king in that simple command. Yet it is in asking, what type of king is this, that we see a stark difference. In Zechariah and in Matthew, we have a reference to a donkey and a foal. In in Matthew, we see that Jesus has both the donkey and the colt with him. Thus, Jesus rides the least militaristic, triumphal thing imaginable. Rather than a chariot or a war horse, we have the king on a female donkey and her little colt trotting alongside her. The people, for the moment at least, recognise Jesus as the king, which is shown in the laying down of the clothing before him. The clear reference uh, that we see in other texts, and other royal texts, uh, is the royal acclamation in 2 Kings 9.13. In that text, the prophet uh, Elisha has sent a proxy to deliver a word of God to Jehu. After pouring oil over Jehu, the messenger says to him in verse 12, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Now, after that declaration, everyone who was present took their garment and placed it (coughs) under Jehu's steps. And they blew the trumpet shouting, Jehu is king. In terms of what this means uh, for Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, it implies that the multitude recognised Jesus as king. 
Like in the case of Jehu, the garments and indeed even the palm branches uh, used them both. Uh, they serve as an improvised red carpet, uh, as it were. Now, huge crowds witness him behaving as a king openly in the most publicly way uh, imaginable. Uh, the crowds see it and they get the message. They acknowledge him and they cry out, Hosanna. Now, Hosanna is a uh, from two Hebrew words, uh, yeshana, uh, it means uh, save us please, or uh, save us now. There is a plea, there is a, an immediacy contained in those words. It is both a form of praise and a plea for deliverance. Uh, however, whilst they acknowledge him as king, they do not grasp what sort of king he really is. And so the joy of the moment is shallow. It's not going to last. Like in the parable of the sower, the seed has landed, but it's landed on stony ground. It shoots up, but it's without root. And as such, the crowd that cheers in but a few days will be the crowd that cheers. Yet the crowd that seek to acclaim and enthrone a king will seek to see him crucified and will witness the mocking title over his head, the king of the Jews. The crowd, you see, didn't want this king. This Messiah had no intention of delivering them from Romans. <laughs> they sought a politically significant, militarily powerful Messiah king who would deliver them from the problems of occupation. They did not expect or want a king who would lay down his own life, who would redeem them from their sins. They do not want a Christ. They do not want the Lamb of God sacrificed before the foundations of the world. He therefore disappoints them in their expectations and they will turn against him. The king rides in to acclamation that he will be dragged away in their condemnation. Save as they cry. And it is in fulfilling this Hosanna that he will end up on the cross. Lord, save us is as much the cry for us now. And it was as much the cry uh, as it was in the crucifixion, as it was in the triumphal entry. Save us, Lord, is the cry of the resurrection as he rises from the dead. It is the cry on the lips of each and every one who has acknowledged the impossibility of saving ourselves and have thrown ourselves instead on his mercy. His claims of kingship are recognised by his opposition, who will, of course, seek to have him killed. The rest of the Gospel account speeds towards the inevitable cross, tomb, great commission and ascension. The conflict is coming to a head, for instead of teaching controversial things far away in a rural setting, Jesus has decided to make his claims up front and in front of the Passover crowd, there in Jerusalem. And he invites their response. The city has been shaken up. Uh, and it will not, and indeed should not, ever be the same. Uh, when we read in verse 10 of our text, we see that the city was stirred up. However, the scale of this stirring can be seen in the fact that this is the same word that's used later in Matthew 27, verse 51, when it describes the earthquake following his death. To the crowds and to the opposition arrayed against him, he has stated in his triumphal entry, I am the king. He has waited all of his life for this moment in order to reveal it. 
At every point until then, he has resisted the call to be declared king. Which leads us to asking, why this change? Why now? Why is he now ready to be acknowledged as the king? Welcome to part two, uh, where I try and answer the question, why now? As an Old Testament scholar, I am struck by how perfectly timed everything is. Uh, there is even the, the text of Daniel 9, 24-27, and the prophecy concerning the Messiah to consider uh, when we try to underline just how perfect this timing is. That prophecy uh, talks of having to wait uh, 483 years uh, before the start of the ministry of the Messiah. Now, following that, there was to be a three and a half year ministry, after which the Messiah was to be killed. And he was to be killed uh, on behalf of others, for the sake of others. And he was to represent the end of all sacrifices being the perfect sacrifice. Of course, uh, it should not be of any wonder to us when we realise that that prophecy places the death of this great Messiah at exactly the time that Jesus Christ dies. It should not surprise us to know that when it comes to Jesus, the timing is perfect. And so the timing is perfect and Jesus sets everything into motion at that right time. As he enters into the city declaring himself to be the king, he does so knowing that this will see him crucified. The opposition that it attracts, the anger seen later in the claims of blasphemy against him, the charges underpinning the crucifixion reside in this very public proclamation. There are some who will say that his death was a tragic and unforeseen outcome. But I need to point out, quite clearly, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Up until now, he has been saying to everyone, do not tell. It's been the constant refrain, do not tell. He commanded the parents of the child. He raised back to life in Luke 8, 56. Do not tell. He instructs the man healed from that skin disease in Matthew 8, verse 4. Likewise, the man with the withered hand in Matthew 12, 16. Having given sight back to the blind, he even charges them with do not tell. <laughs> Even his own disciples are sworn to silence following the transfiguration in Matthew 17, verse 9. And their new awareness of who he is was to be kept to themselves until after he had died, after he had been raised. You see, there was an appointed time for him to be revealed, and not before that time. As we read in John 6, 14-15, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, equally, his, his enemies uh, were utterly powerless until the appointed time. Uh, John 7 verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. <coughs> This is not an unplanned event with unforeseen circumstances. Jesus knew that he would die. He knew the consequences. He had confided as much to his disciples. And now as he enters into Jerusalem on that donkey, he starts the ball rolling. Declaring his kingship, he puts into place the events that will see him killed. With maximum impact, he rides into Jerusalem, swollen with the Passover pilgrims, declaring, yeah, 
I am the prophet. I am the king. I am the long-awaited Messiah. I am God. Now is the time, and the whole earth can know it. The timing is perfect. The timing is prophesied. And he knew where this was headed. Uh, rather than see him dying due to an unfortunate, unforeseen circumstance, um, he is actively going to the horns of the altar. Psalm 118, which is what is being cited by the crowd in their chorus of uh, Hosanna, says this, Hoshana, which is save us, we pray. O Yahweh, O Yahweh, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. We bless you from the house of Yahweh. Yahweh is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. This psalm marks a journey which is leading to the altar, to the place of sacrifice, to the horns of the altar where the creature would normally be tied down, where the sacrifice would be slain by the hand of the one who brought it. It is again perfectly timed because it coincides with Passover, the great salvation feast. Here, Jesus, the embodiment of all that feast, is to become the ultimate lamb and see all of those Passover lessons fulfilled. As I'm sure you remember, the original Passover emphasised that's the only way to be saved from the angel of death is through the blood of a sacrificed lamb. Saved from death, but also saved to life, a new life, a life in the promised land, a life of being the people of God, of being described as the treasure of God. And so we have the sacrificial lamb and the angel of death written down in the book of Exodus, uh, the book that centres on the release from captivity and the birth of a nation. The crowd seek a Messiah who will lead them in a Passover against Rome, much as the first had been against Egypt. They do not realise how small their aspirations are, how transient and paltry a request from this king. The Lamb of God is not simply to release them from a, a temporal plight, a momentary freedom from the oppression of other human beings. He is to redeem them utterly from the grip of death itself. And yet they miss it. They have all the right words, but they really do fail to truly grasp who he is. Jesus continues into Jerusalem and much like uh, Psalm 118, he goes to the temple just as it describes, that place of sacrifice where the cries of Hosanna continue. Yet when he gets there, what is it that he sees? Well, actually, he sees an approved money-making scheme that actively prevented people access to God. The temple, the place where God and man were to meet, was being thwarted in its purpose. The poor, uh, the foreigner, of whom so much is written in the law, of whom uh, Yahweh himself reveals in the Old Testament that he has a, a special passion and protection for. These people were being prevented access to God by the people who were supposed to represent him. The God of the temple was being portrayed as being uninterested in the poor uh, and the foreigner because it had become a den of thieves. The money changing from the currencies of the world brought by pilgrims and the local inhabitants, 
was uh, changed into temple money with a significant markup, ripping off all the people, making the price of sacrifice too high and excluding those without the, the means. And this is despite the fact that in Levitical code, in actual fact, um, if you could not afford the sacrifice, there were alternatives. The Levitical code makes space for the poor. But such was the lucrative nature of the business that the court of the Gentiles, the place that reached out to the foreigner to tell them about God, was full. They said, you are welcome into this place where God could be revealed to you. But only if you have the means. And so this place got filled, this place where prayer, this place where worship, this place where people could come and know God was filled with animals and money changing. The purpose of this very court was denied. The place of sacrifice and prayer was a site of economic oppression, a place where man had the audacity to stand between God and his fellow man and all so that he could gain financially. Now do we think that God and our relationship with him is a game? A game that we can play with the rules that we have devised? The people of Judah did in Jeremiah 7. And that's what Christ chillingly makes allusion to in his citation of that uh, in verse 11. The Jeremiah quote is very telling indeed. The text that had been given at the time when Judah relied upon the status that was bestowed on them by the existence of the temple rather than the God of the temple. And they relied on external religious action rather than heartfelt devotion that was required of them. They believed that they could place their small national deity into a box when they could open that box at their own leisure rather than fall at the feet of the Lord of all nations. The terrible actions of the people, so divorced from reality, are noted in Jeremiah in 7 verse 9. And the futility of finding absolution in empty religion, which is all they possessed, there were going to be terrible consequences for those who misrepresented God and who played games in the place that he dwelled. It is a text that talks of the anger of God, who will not be mocked, or of the God who cannot be controlled or dictated to, is the text that helps us see the import of what Christ then does. The people in the Jeremiah context refused to listen. They were ultimately crushed. The temple was destroyed. And there's a chilling parallel then to what will happen to the people who refuse to listen to Jesus, God, speaking to them in that place. Jesus responds to the thievery that would dare to keep people out, the arrogance that would have the temerity to decide who could have access to God, the God of all creation. As he drives them out, he makes it again a place of prayer instead of what it had become. However, most importantly, notes that by using the text, he claims that the temple is my house. Not God's house, as if it was someone else. His house. It is mine. He then goes on to heal the lame and the blind, which are signs of the Messiah. It's also 
what is promised in the restoration of relationship in the book of Jeremiah, uh, where God will call back the lame and the blind in, in chapter 38. You see, the destroyed temple in Jeremiah wasn't the end of the story. Uh, there was going to be hope. God was going to come and rescue the people and the lame and the blind would be healed. And Jesus heals them as a sign of Messiah here. It's another sign that he is God. And the Pharisees respond. The problem is they don't respond in the right way. Instead of falling on their knees in wonder or falling on their face before the king or even just mumbling a Hosanna. They respond in anger. They refuse to accept him as God. They challenge him and his response is to quote another psalm. This psalm, Psalm 8 verse 2. And accepting the praise given to him as his due because he is God. He again, in that moment, claims divinity. Now I know that there are some you do not understand who persist in stating that Jesus never claimed to be God. It's a staggering thing to say. It displays a real stark lack of awareness of pretty much everything he says and does but his hearers understood the Pharisees will seek to have him crucified for this blasphemy they got it Jesus right there stood in the house of God and claims to be God and he shows up the emptiness of the religion that had been dominating the temple Now there's a little section that comes after that uh, Isaac read, uh, which again demonstrates Christ acting in a manner that says, I am God. I have the right to judge what is mine. Uh, Though it is telling that many of us actually more often have sympathy for the tree than for the people who will find themselves broken and destroyed within a generation. It is possibly because we think the tree is undeserving of its fate, yet that does not really make sense in the context. And though the other gospel writers note that it was not harvest time as it was at Passover, uh, not the later more appropriate season for the full fruits, there should still have been something edible on the tree. Uh, Probably early fruits, even a hard bud which appears before the leaves have fallen off. Both here and in Luke 13, we see that the fact that the tree has made a show in the form of the leaves uh, led the observer to conclude that something edible should reside on it. As such, the leaves invited inspection. Similarly, Israel, for all of the showy leaves, all of the promise, all of the expectation of fruit, similarly disappoints. As a, it's a parallel to Micah 7, uh, 1 and 2, where God, looking for the early or, or first fruits, uh, the figs, finds none. And in Micah, the fruit tree represents the people, and the figs represents their responsiveness to him. Jesus is able to describe Israel as this barren tree, both in terms of the fruit they should have been producing, but also in the context of his recent declaration to be the Messiah King. Following the triumphal entry the previous day, Jesus looks for their response. He looks at the religion centred in the temple. He sees nothing but show, nothing but leads, without evidence of even an early bud, the beginning, the potential for fruit. As in the Micah parallel, there is none. There is nothing on the tree and there is nothing in the people. Not even in the temple, not even in the priests, not even in the chief priests. There's not even the faintest 
trace of fruit. All of the Hosannas have hung hollow. There is no fruit. And as the one who had planted Israel, who had tended her, pruned her when needed and gave her everything, the least that he can expect is the potential of fruit to come. And instead there's a great show of leaves, a great spectacle of Hosannas. But there's nothing of importance. And of course this will apply to us too. Welcome back to part three, uh, where we try and look at some of the application of what we've been looking at so far. You know, it is enough that we read the text, that we consider it in some detail, and learn something of the nature of God revealed in this text. However, there is also a question that we should be asking arising from our passage. You see, the people, God's people, really missed it. For all of the hosannas, for all of the religion, for all of the temple activities, there was no recognition of the king when he arrived in their lives. The religious leaders were so busy playing games with God by the rules that they had set, they failed to see he wasn't playing. Instead of scorning the hosannas, they should have joined in in full gusto. Instead of stealing from those who would meet with God, they should have put down the temple currency and worshipped him. Instead of being angry, they should have been repentant. Instead of being all show and leaves, they should have been full of fruit. Because he would not play their game, they set themselves against him and though they will see him on a cross, they cannot win. Simply because they will not acknowledge him doesn't make him any less a king. Doesn't make him any less their king. The question is then, what of us? Will we listen to the Hosannas and join in? Do we show the fruits resulting from recognising that king in our lives? Will we put down our temple currency and see the owner of the temple? See that he demands more of us. Demands that we enthrone him in our hearts. You know, often, though I get ahead of myself slightly, often the way that we act reminds me of the soldiers that gambled at the foot of the cross. If you remember, uh, they were gambling over his clothes right there where he could see them, right there at his feet. I think of them because I think of them as a good parallel for the church far too often. They were so near the cross, but they were so far from the Christ. They were so near the blood, and yet they were so far from the Saviour. They were so near the wood, the thorns, the nails, and yet so far from bowing the knee to the king who was hanging there. The question is, will we stop games that we can be tempted to play at the foot of the cross? Will we put down our dice and cry out, that is God on that tree? Or will we be like the Sanhedrin? Take the sandal that we have won and storm off, unwilling to see the King of Kings enthroned in his rightful place in our hearts. At this time, when everything has been peeled away, all of the structures and traditions, we have a wonderful opportunity to really again cast our eyes on the King. To see him in the rightful place in our hearts. To enthrone him. Because that's the only way that we will bear fruit. The growth of the fruit is not down to us, it's about him in us. 
making sure we've made the space, making sure we've got our eyes firmly on him. One day we too will stand with palm branches in our hands, though instead of crying out to God to please or now provide salvation, we'll be crying out to God because of the salvation he has provided. Revelation 7, 9-10 says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. What a glorious future for those who simply live lives Acknowledge that the King is the King. May God bless you. Amen.